Hey everybody, uh, it's Zach and welcome to another episode of the Like a New Day podcast. I've got a lot to go over today. I got uh, I had intended on just doing a short intro and uh, leading right into our interview with David Bickley from uh, Like a DC, which has been long teased here on the podcast. So I'm uh, excited to bring that to you today and we will get to that. But um, I wanted to uh, actually talk a little bit about uh, listener messages and uh, kind of bring you up to speed on a few things. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for the individual that uh, left me my first one star review. Uh, so far, you guys have been excellent about leaving me five star reviews all over the place, which I very much appreciate because uh, I can clearly see where there's bumps in traffic when you do give me a five star review and you, especially when you actually take the time to uh, write positive content there. But um, I was uh, proud to get my first one star review because this individual said uh, that uh, I needed to keep my politics to myself. Well, you know, for those of you that have been listening a long time, um, you know, this is not a political podcast, clearly, but uh, I did spend a good chunk of one episode detailing how I had done um, photo documentary work of the local Democratic Party and our governor and all that here in Michigan. And on top of that, you hear me say this all the time. My day job is that I'm an executive director of an environmental nonprofit organization. So my politics are not exactly uh, a mystery, although I don't really consider myself a highly political person. So, you know, you're, you're not going to hear that. But for the individual that left me a one star review because I, quote unquote, bashed Trump, well, I don't think he's a very good president, and that's just my personal opinion. Uh, you can take it or leave it. It doesn't have anything to do with photography, creativity, um, although I would say that uh, maybe it does have a little something to do with my mental health, uh, but um, hey, he's on his way out, right? If that really bothers you, uh, then hey, you know what? Uh, you can let your uh, you know your digits do the, uh, do the talking and uh, type up a different podcast uh, because that's just the way it is, but um, hopefully it doesn't bother you that much. If you uh, happen to be a right-leaning person, that's fine. Uh, there's absolutely no, no, no problem with that, but I do uh, appreciate human decency and I appreciate uh, you know, when we're all in this together. So, um, you know, regardless of your politics, I think we can all agree that we want the world to be a better place. And uh, thank you very much uh, for listening. So thank you, uh, individual that left me a one-star review. And um, I hope that you have fun on Parlor or wherever you're going from here. So at any rate, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, meaningful listener content, okay? Uh, I have gotten to the point where I'm getting a lot of messages from you guys, which is amazing because, uh, you know, I think you know from listening to this and, you know, reading up a little bit about me, maybe following me online, a lot of you have, uh, you know, taken to my Instagram and things. That's great. My mental state is fragile sometimes uh, when it comes to my self-confidence to be putting myself out here like this. And um, it's really amazing, uh, those of you that have sent me messages of encouragement and also to share your stories. And uh, they're, they're really, when it rains, it pours. We're getting a lot. So um, I just want to let you know that um, if I have not written you back yet, uh, it is absolutely uh, not at all because I don't care. Um, it is just because the volume of these messages and actually the detail of these messages is incredible. I mean, it, 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 very few of you have sent me a message that say, you know, hey, man, good job. Although a few of you have, you know, uh, that, that's been wonderful. You know, Todd, Todd Brown here, I got a message from him that just was a letter of encouragement. And hey, man, keep keep it up. And it was short and sweet. And that was great. Um, but, uh, a lot of you have sent me long and detailed messages, uh, which I absolutely adore and, um, I treasure and I will always treasure them. Even if this podcast comes and goes, uh, I will treasure them. And I just wanted you to know that, that, uh, the brevity of my message uh, back to you is in no way indicative of, uh, some sort of level of caring. Um, it's just that, uh, it takes me a little bit of time to actually get back there and, uh, you know, actually 
put the time into a thoughtful response back to you because I don't want to shortchange you. So a lot of you have been communicating with me over Instagram Messenger. And uh, also, if it takes me a few days there, I'm a little bit absent-minded when it comes to approving uh, messages from new people that are not, um, you know, when I don't follow you, it goes into a bucket where it says that there's a request that's been made to send me a message. So I got to go in there and approve them. So uh, every once in a while I go and I look and I'm like, oh, there's three or four new people there because since I don't know you, I don't already follow you. So it goes into there. Uh, But once I approve them, I absolutely love to communicate with you. Um, speaking of which, uh, I wanted to say that uh, I did make a little change uh, there to the opening of this podcast. I hope you noticed. Uh, I had uh, a number of you say that the theme music is too long. And uh, hey, yeah, no, I have no ego about it. I will tell you this. Uh, this is why the theme music is long and why my transition music is long uh, sometimes. And it's because I record everything in one shot on a multi-track uh, system here, which is a road uh, podcaster or yeah. What is it called? The Roadcaster Pro. That's what it's called. And um, it's a lot uh, easier than doing a complicated multi-track thing later and mixing all my transitions later. Instead, I just bring up that channel and dial that channel down. So sometimes uh, I need a little bit more time to catch my breath and collect my thoughts. Uh, So that's actually why the transitions are a little long and uh, sometimes the theme song is a little bit long. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to bring that down because I know that uh, some of you uh, have been kind of, you know, not that interested in toughing it out. Okay, a couple other things here. Uh, I wanted to mention a few of you in particular. Hey, Keith Jackson, thanks for the message about camera bags. Uh, Anybody that wants to send me a message and talk about the best camera bags, please do so because I am a camera bag addict. Um, I have a couple of uh, go-tos right now. My current go-to is the uh, Peter McKinnon and Nomadic uh, mashup bag, which take it or leave the Peter McKinnon part. I actually remember Peter McKinnon's YouTube channel from when he had about uh, 30,000 subscribers. And I thought, oh, this this guy's cool. This like sort of happy-go-lucky Canadian. And now he has like massive brand deals and a huge collection of Rolexes. And he's got all kinds of fancy stuff. And so... I don't know. I mean, that's fine. I'm not going to begrudge, begrudge anybody's success, but his channel is like a massive series of commercials uh, sometimes, including putting his name on stuff, which is fine because I think that he is incredibly meticulous when it comes to the equipment that he uses. And uh, this bag is no exception. We needed a bag for my field work, uh, photography and videography for the conservancy. And um, I needed a bigger, heavier duty bag to carry everything with me. And so I ended up buying the full nomadic setup you know, it's pretty neat. It's like uh, this really neat uh, black tarpaulin kind of bag, really, really durable, but uh, very, very clever in how it all fits together. And uh, there is this one packing cube that fits into this neat cavity. And actually that packing cube becomes a breakout um, day pack backpack. Uh, And you can, the bottom part of it is like a camera bag pouch or not pouch, but compartment. And then the top part is this soft uh, material that kind of stretches out of there with these really lightweight straps. It's awesome because you can travel and like I can fit the Q2 and um, you can kind of cram the SL2 in the bottom, but it's a little bit tall, but I can put my cameras in the bottom, zip it up and then throw this on as a backpack. And then you have room in the top for day pack stuff. And then when you're going to fly home, presumably I haven't flown since I've had it, but you know, when you're going to travel home, that uh, cube goes back into its compartment in the main bag. And then uh, I use a lot of Bellroy accessories. I use the Bellroy you know, portfolios and I use their pouches and I use their tech uh, kit thing to keep track of all my dongles and whatnot. I'm a Mac user. So I have a lot of dongles because they've deprived us of USB ports and SD card slots and all that stuff. Instead, we just get a couple USB slots. So um, yeah, the Peter McKinnon Nomadic setup. Also, it came with uh, some really neat accessories. One was an SD card envelope that's all magnetic and the same thing for a battery uh, pack that's uh, magnetic uh, that holds three batteries. And I will let you know, I was a little bit worried about this, but the SL2 slash Q2 slash Q slash Q monochrome 
uh, those batteries fit perfectly in that. You can fit three of them across and it shuts. Um, honestly, even if you don't buy any of the other nomadic stuff, uh, if you look online and you want a really good, really kind of clever way to uh, store your extra batteries and you're a um, an EVF like a guy like I am, uh, then you might uh, dig it because uh, yeah, it fits our batteries perfectly. And uh, they're not they're not small batteries, as you know, uh, or maybe you don't know. But um, if you're not familiar, uh, those batteries are weather sealed along the bottom and they fit into the bottom of the camera. There is no door, so they're kind of a they're kind of a bulky battery, wouldn't you? agree i mean i've used canon i've used nikon i've used all those and like the the nikon elb one whatever batteries are a little bit smaller and that but i don't know i the 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 batteries are are excellent uh but they're they're a little bulky but they fit so so yeah nomadic and then i also use uh on a day-to-day basis i use the peak design version 2 six liter sling and that fits a q2 perfectly with a strap and an accessory wrist strap and then on the other side i put in a um well like half the compartment the other half of the compartment, I put in a, um, a little Bellroy pouch that I have all kinds of like just on the daily stuff that I need. And then uh, I've got room for a mask and uh, there's some neat little um, uh, slots on the inside where I can put a uh, hand sanitizer and stuff. So in this uh, era of COVID, I have found that I just have too many things to carry around with me. So, you know, when it comes to your phone, your wallet, your keys, your camera that I like to carry, uh, your, you know, dongles and little accessories that you need for, for your digital life pen, you know, whatever. It's just too much stuff. I don't have pockets. Like I hate carrying stuff in my pockets. Do any of you hate carrying your stuff in your pockets? I sure do. So I'm using a sling now. So Keith, that's what I'm up to. Um, but I am always open to new, uh, bag solutions. So if anybody has any ideas for bags that they really, really like, I'm kind of in the market for a, on the daily backpack that is sort of mid-sized that would fit, uh, an SL2 with a 50 millimeter on it and uh, my Q2, and then also have enough room for like an A5 size uh, journal, because I like to journal, and that's another thing I've gotten into, by the way. Um, if you are into journaling, I was given a, uh, um, a journal that is, I thought at first a little gimmicky, comes from our friends in the UK, it's called a Mind Journal, and it's uh, M-I-N-D, Mind Journal. There's like a lot of infographic commercials for this thing uh, on social media or maybe just for me because they've targeted uh, the the content towards my, um, you know, fragile mental state half the time. So I don't know. But at any rate, I did get this mind journal and, and uh, I like it so far. So um, I've been kind of at the very least, it's just kind of training you to journal. I've tried to journal before uh, and you never like sometimes I just sit there and I'm like, well, I don't know what to write about today. So um, this has helped because it just gives you a bunch of prompts. And then every time you write a journal entry, it's got a checklist of like, well, what's your emotional state today? How are all these things, uh, these things treating you? And I've found that it's actually built some optimism in me and I'm feeling pretty good lately. So, uh, you know, that's, that's one of many things that have been positive addition to my life. So, um, the idea is that it trains you and then you just use blank journals after you kind of get the hang of it, I think. And then you can, you know, move on to other things. So, uh, I like to carry a journal around. Also, I need to take notes a lot for work cause I don't remember a damn thing. Uh, I don't know about you, but I always need to write everything down. So Keith, bags. That was great. Uh, quick shout out to Alan Holtzman. Thanks a lot for your message, Alan. I really enjoyed everything you had to say. Good luck with your Q2. Uh, you know, you're, you're right on, right on target with what you're doing. And uh, I really appreciated your message. 
Uh, Tim uh, Pierce, uh, thanks a lot for your message as well. I really, uh, I really appreciated everything that you had to say. Really nice to hear from you. And uh, I am going to talk to you again soon. I promise. Okay. Uh, Chris Broadbent, uh, hey, nice to hear back from you after our discussion uh, on the last episode about uh, about Chris and what you'd written me uh, there from uh, the UK. I can't wait to get over there. I'm going to get over to the UK. I'm going to shoot with you guys. We have quite a few uh, listeners in the UK and uh, I'm going to track you guys down and come hang out with you. That's going to be great. I want to do that. I also would like to do, uh, eventually, I'd like to do a listener hangout in New York because uh, I do get to New York a lot and that will be my absolute uh, first destination as soon as I am permitted to do so. Um, if anybody's in Minneapolis, let me know as well. Uh, my best friend's in Minneapolis, the best man at my wedding. Uh, he's there and uh, I really want to go see him. I miss him dearly. I haven't seen him in a couple of years. And then uh, of course the pandemic prevented me from visiting this year, uh, which was was planned. So uh, I would love to, uh, to go and visit him. So if there's anybody in Minneapolis who wants to hang out, uh, look me up, send me a message. Uh, quick message uh, too to Ricky. Ricky, hey, uh, thanks a lot for your message and thank you for your service. Ricky is a service member with the Air Force. He's based in uh, Japan and uh, I enjoyed your message, Ricky. And uh, thank you so much for your service and uh, keep it up, man. You're doing a great job. Uh, so yeah, so that's all it. Um, oh, you know what? I am going to talk about Bob though. Bob, Bob from Cleveland. Bob, I hope I got this right. Uh, S-O-L-T-Y-S, Bob Soltis. Uh, you sent me a wonderful and detailed message uh, here. And I'm actually looking at it right on my screen right now. And um, I thought this was great. Bob. I was a little bit insecure about that last episode, my straight out of camera episode. If you uh, didn't get a chance to listen to it, please do. It's a little bit of a um, sort of a raw, I just sit down and blurb kind of uh, message. And uh, I had a, a lot of you write me and tell me that you did actually enjoy that format. So that's great uh, because it just, it's literally not rehearsed. It's not written down. Actually, none of these are, to be fair. Uh, except for some of the more uh, researched episodes you'll find where uh, if you find in the topic where it says I'm talking about a specific piece of gear or a specific uh, creativity or photographic um, technique. Uh, but Bob, uh, straight out of camera, you know, your <laughs> your message was wonderful and it really came uh, at the right time uh, about a week, week and a half ago. Uh, and you said, thanks for another outstanding podcast. Keep up the great work. And here's a couple of ideas. So first of all, um, I had talked in that last episode about uh, just a lot of things, you know, being self-conscious about shooting black and white on a camera that shoots excellent color. And like, am I, you know, am I actually using this camera to its fullest potential? Um, you know, I talked a lot about uh, whether or not, you know, having tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. Well, not quite, but well, you know what? Kind of, you know, um, in, in camera equipment was uh, necessary for basically shooting snapshots of our family. <laughs> um, talked about some printing ideas here. Uh, but one of the things that uh, Bob talked about was uh, business cards. He uh, uses business cards and uh, makes a big stack, takes them with him when he goes on trips. And when he's about to shoot a photo of somebody or he asks, he hands him that. And then uh, it's got his contact info and he's made some friends that way in exchange. That's a great uh, suggestion, Bob. I, I have a little stack of business cards, but I've never thought about using them in that way. I always kind of hoard them and protect them. I spent too much money on them and uh, I just kind of have them tucked away. And if I get into a long discussion with somebody about photography, I like to pull it out and say, oh, you know, here's my business card. You can call me. The way, the way that you say that you use them is, is just awesome. You know, you take, uh, you know, these, these, it's doing a whole other level. You're just using these little cards and you're just handing those babies out every time you get an opportunity. I, I like that idea. I'm going to do that, uh, Bob. I'm going to make up a, a much simpler, uh, more affordable card uh, that just uh, has my information on there, just a classy little card, and I'm going to have a big old stack of them and I'm just going to have them with me all the time because you never know what can happen, right? Handing people a professional business card uh, lends an imprimatur of credibility uh, to working on the street. You talked about a message uh, or about an opportunity you had in Paris. You asked a gentleman who came to the Cafe de Metro with his dog if he could photograph them, handed him a card, and offered to send him a scan. That's cool. He pulled out his phone, emailed me his address. You're still exchanging from time to time. That's awesome because that's a lot of what this is about. Again, I'm not a professional. I'm doing this because I 
want to. I want to take pictures. I want to enjoy photography. I want to enjoy Leica and I want to have, uh, you know, have it be a positive uh, thing in my life. So Bob, that was a great suggestion. I'm going to do that. I'm going to try to uh, put together a business card. Is anybody out there a designer of business cards? I think it'd be kind of cool to make a novel business card that gives you a little bit of vibe about who I am or what this podcast is about or whatever, you know, something I could hand somebody that has a little story on the back or something like that. So if you have any ideas about business cards, or if you are a graphic designer and you've got some awesome example, um, I would love to hear from you. So please give me a shout out, uh, send me a message uh, again, zgbrannigan at gmail.com or just go to Zachary Brannigan. Dot com. You can find me there. This was a long intro. This is a much longer intro than I had intended. Uh, without further ado, let's make way for this interview with David. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. It has been a little bit. It has been. It has been. Um, yeah, I, you know, gosh, with somebody like you, I don't even know where to start. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with uh, photography generally? Just kind of, uh, you know, give us the nuts and bolts of who you are and and, and why you're here today. Yeah, for sure. Um, I really got into photography. Let's call it about age 19. I'm 36 right now. I'll be 37 next month. And I, it was an accident. I was going to be going to school for concept art, like the people that do all the crazy monsters and set designs and stuff to make movies and video games. And I was going to move out to California to a school there. And I thought to myself, I've never been to California before. And maybe it'd be nice to take some pictures while I'm there and send stuff back to my family. So I got a little, uh, it's an Olympus C750. I bought the kit off of eBay. It was just call it a point and shoot today, basically. It was just, it's just that. And as soon as it showed up, I tried a bunch of different stuff. And then I headed down the street to my grandmother's house and started playing around in her garden. That camera had a macro feature. And I turned that on and I started getting really close to things. And it was over, man. I just, I fell in love with the whole thing. And it helped too that it was way easier than sitting in front of something and painting for like 12 hours. Like I just snap, 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 done and on to the next thing. Uh, so I, I kind of was like, well, let me let me check this out. And financially, it made more sense to go and get my, my core classes done at the community college rather than the crazy expensive art school. So I, I shifted gears a little bit and decided that I'd spend about a year just doing that and seeing what this was all about. And I'd say maybe two semesters in at most, I was off to the races. I was I started making money doing just taking pictures. And it really never stopped. I took maybe one more semester at that community college and I never looked back. And and actually that last semester was just fencing. So I wouldn't even like call that as <laughs> a count, I guess, as far as college credit goes. Um, but yeah, it it kind of just snowballed from there. Eventually, I, you know, we all start, I think, doing like weddings and, and stuff like that. And, and I did that too. Um, but I, I found my way into working for an advertising agency as a, a designer also, but primarily like the, the in-house photographer there gave me a ton of experience with uh, just crafting images that are intended to sell stuff. And 
I'd always kind of been in like the marketing advertising vein of stuff. I'd always loved design. So it really, it dovetailed nicely with my interests then. And from there, I I just kind of kept pushing in that direction. I kept trying to get better. And I, and then I ended up moving, uh, I had moved away for a couple of years and I moved back uh, for a death in the family. And I decided to, to just try some different stuff. I moved into portraiture a little bit, ended up hooking up with uh, a couple people that really s- helped me see that my particular skill set, my particular background was a really good fit for fitness photography. I've been in martial arts since I was a kid, so there's kind of an underlying understanding of anatomy there. And I, I <laughs> these two people were uh, world champion like fitness competitors. They did like bodybuilding shows and things like that. They'd be mad at me for saying bodybuilding, but same kind of vein, right? And and I, I hounded them for a couple months saying I was so arrogant too. I was like, you know, guys, I can take way better pictures than the people that you're using. Why don't you just give me a shot? And finally they said, yeah. And those two people, shout out to Micah and Diana, who will probably never hear this, but they they really helped me get to know a lot of people in that industry. We went to the Arnold Fitness Classic together and I spent three straight 16-hour days each networking with every single person I could possibly network with at that event. And ever since then, I was the fitness photographer in, in the Midwest region. I got myself to a place where I had been published on every single continent, save for Antarctica, probably because they don't have magazines. And and that was my career for a really long time. And maybe I take a break from the the life story and give you a second yeah. to, <laughs> to address anything that came up in that. But uh, yeah. Well, no, that's interesting. It's interesting to me that, um, you know, after looking at your, uh, your portfolio and talking to you a little bit that, you know, the fitness photography is something that kind of came into it, you know, a ways back there. It was, I mean, that really is a specialty and something that's featured heavily on your site. I will say that if you go to uh, David's uh, site and you will see a link to that in the description to this episode, it's great because you scroll through all these pages. And then um, is that Ed Asner that's in there? It is. <laughs> it's like you're you're looking, I'll just tell you, you know, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but she's like, there's this page of like probably some of the most fit and beautiful women and men in the world page after page, dramatically studio lit. And then Ed Asner, it's a great picture of Ed Asner. It's just like, I didn't, of all the celebrities, I would say Ed Asner was probably, you know, at least third or fourth on the list of people I expected to see in that portfolio. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty funny. That, uh, that photo came from a project that we did for a magazine in Kansas city that wanted to talk about celebrities that had grown up in the area and Ed Asner and Paul Rudd and several other people are on that list. And so we got to do that whole project. We flew all around the country, missed a few of them because of scheduling conflicts. Like when we were in LA where Paul Rudd and Jason Sudeikis and them were supposed to be, they had uh, something happened and they had to fly to Boston. So they, they were gone and they weren't going to be like, oh, well, let's just go follow them to Boston because mm-hmm. we had other stuff on the schedule. So I missed out on that. But yeah, Ed was a riot, man. He's easily one of the most fun people I've ever photographed because like right before... Oh man, I don't even know if I should tell this story. I'm going to tell it anyway. All right. Uh, let me preface this by saying that everything that I say here has nothing to do with like a corporate. So <laughs> if I go off the rails, they, uh, yeah, I'm not speaking for them. But Ed, uh, we get to LA and a lot of studios in LA are in uns- like places you wouldn't expect. The space is a premium there. So we were in 
what I think is called the fashion district in this like kind of warehouse is maybe 13, 14 stories tall. And we're up on like the second or second from the top or the top floor in this studio that couldn't be more than 600 square feet, tiny little place. And my art director's there, the whole crew's there and we're waiting for Ed and we get the call that he's there. So she runs downstairs. My art director does, and she meets with him. And when she comes back up, because she knows me so well, she looks at me and she says, he is not in a good mood. Everyone behaves. She's like making direct eye contact with me. The more we talk, the more you'll understand why she probably said this. Because, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting ready for that. I have all the lights and everything set up. And I need to run to the restroom before he comes in. So I'm in the bathroom, standing at the urinal. Ed Asner walks in. He's like, how you doing, son? I'm like, I'm, I'm doing just fine. How about you, sir? And, and you know, we we part because there's like a rule we don't discuss things in the bathroom as men. And I I couldn't even imagine what was going through his head when he came into the studio and saw me as the person that was holding the camera because it was like this double take. And, and we just kind of we blew past it. We went from there, and he and I are having the dialogue like you normally do. And he's he's just not having any of it. You can tell that he's not. He oh, doesn't no. like the place that we're in. I he. Uh, he had a particular way of referring to it that I won't repeat, <laughs> but oh, no. he, uh, he didn't want to be up there and his, his, uh, publicist or whoever was with him, he, he was equally unimpressed because we were shooting just on like a bare white wall with one octa light in the whole thing. And I mean, when you would look at that, you would think, well, what, what is this even going to look like? It would seem like it would be very boring. You saw the shot, like yeah. it, it turned out really pretty. Mm -hmm. And so it, it takes a little bit it takes about five shots for me to get him to a place where I'm okay with it. And one of the tactics that I like to use with new clients or just really anybody in general is I like to give them a little ego boost as early as I possibly can. So I try and nail at least something out of the gate that I think that they'll be okay with. And then I like to show it to them. So like they, they see where we're at. It'll get us both a little bit on the same page. We can collaborate from there because they understand what I'm seeing and what I'm looking for. And instead of showing it to Ed, because uh, you know, I just decided to to not, I showed it to his his person that was with him, and he gave the nod of approval, and it was okay. So then I showed it to Ed, and they all of a sudden became very excited about it. But man, he was antagonizing me the whole time. Oh, no. He was telling me like, "Well, you're not being very entertaining," <laughs> and my response to him. Just I'll let you imagine my art director's face after I said this. I looked at him stone faced. I was like you're the paid entertainer, man. You, you do your thing. <laughs> you gave me like the grandpa wink and we were great after that. Like Perfect. it was, it was so fun. And the dude's a character. So he's from Salina, Kansas, which is like this, uh, I think as he told it, it was basically like he grew up on a junkyard huh. and then went on to become, you know, Ed Asner. That's crazy. And yeah. So that's, that's the, the long and short of that story, but it was a, it was a blast. Oh, I really fun. enjoyed meeting him. It's fun to, uh, I mean, it, it's interesting. I, we, we just had a conversation in my house with my, uh, my wife and I and my son talking about celebrity and famous people and, you know, how famous people are just regular old people. I had a couple of interesting experiences lately shooting some people that are very high profile, not like super professionally, but just as a result of my circumstances, I'm going to talk about some of that in a future episode, but um, you know, they're just, people are just people, you know, and you, you make a connection with them. And then if you forget about the fact that this person is a really important person or a really famous person. And it was funny. We, we, my wife and I met Bono one time 
And it was just this crazy story. And I mean, he's like one of the world's most famous people, this guy. And my wife had been at the time, this was quite a long time ago. She'd been a U2 fan like her whole life leading up to that point. And so for, she barely could speak, but I was never a U2 fan. So like to me, he was just kind of a short guy with funny glasses. And I was just like, oh, hey, you know, I'm talking to him. And she's like, man, how did you, <laughs> golly, you know, and I said, well, I don't know. He just didn't. It didn't impress me that much. I mean, he's really famous. He's really great and all that stuff. He was really nice. And we were just a few minutes and it was kind of a weird encounter, but I don't know. I just think that if you just, yeah, well, you're spot on there, man. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a hundred percent true. The, the challenge I think is always like keeping a level of respect at the same time, treating them no different than you would really treat anybody else. And for me, that's the sweet spot. If if a person can get over their initial like feeling of being starstruck and remember that, yeah, this is just another human and they're just as human as you are, it changes the dynamic. You can you break down that barrier and hopefully if it's done well, if it's done with a, a concern for rapport and, and again respect, then then yeah, like you can really quickly turn what would otherwise have been an uncomfortable shoot into like the start of a friendship. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. You know, the, um, well, it must've served you well for a long time. Cause you have a lot. And I now with all of these fitness images and stuff, I mean, I, I only have seen what's on your website, but I would assume that having done that for a long period of time, did you probably come in contact with some of the same models or some of the same people multiple times? I mean, the they, or, or is it oh, something yeah, where, you, yeah. So, I mean, you know, if you're developing a relationship with them too, it's kind of like, um, uh, well, speaking of Leica photographers, you know, I follow uh, Greg Williams on Instagram and he's like a pretty famous backstage at the Oscars kind of photographer. He shoots a lot of that with a Q2 and he does marketing videos for Leica and he's like, well, you know, the Q2 is great because nobody, you know, thinks anything of that camera. You know, it's just such an inobtrusive little, unobtrusive little camera. And he's got pictures of all the most famous actors and actresses in the world. And then you kind of go down that rabbit hole a little bit with some articles that talk about him and all of the artists just really like him. He's just like a really nice and charismatic guy. And so he gets the pictures because they're like, Hey, hop in the limo with me, you know, Hey, do this. And he's, he's photographed some of these people so many times they trust him so well. And the pictures get better because their relationship is strong and they trust his judgment. They're comfortable with them. And I mean, it, it's, I just finished a little magazine project for work that we had gotten a grant for. And I kind of talked about this in the little intro that I had written because it was, half the photos, like my, all my favorite photos are taken of my coworkers and my top volunteers, people that I know really, really well, because you, I just have the access to like get up in their face or be closer. And the pictures get a lot more intimate. Half the other pictures in the book are all of people that I met that day. They're volunteers for the organization that I work for. They showed up that day. And, you know, a lot of those pictures, I just feel like at least in the narrative of this book, not really narrative, but kind of illustrating what it's all about those pictures are really more like coloring in the blanks and the, the more intimate pictures of the people that are like really into the organization. They're people that I know really well. It's funny. Cause you don't think about it at the time. Like for me, it's like, I'm lining up the picture. I'm happy with the composition. I like the color. But then when you get home and you're looking at them, you're just like, this is a better picture. Just the, you can just see something in that person's reaction or the way they're either, maybe they're just completely like I'm absent in the picture, which makes it better. You know, they're, they're used to me being around, you know, whereas the other people that just met me that day, they're just really conscious that there's somebody taking their picture over their shoulder. I don't know. It's just a, a quality that comes yeah. through when you start looking at them and you're like, oh, I like these better. For sure. I mean, cause it, it kind of comes down to this, like, uh, I don't have a better way to say this than this, but like the relationship of relationship in mm -hmm. photography, you know, a lot of us 
get kind of stuck in this oh i'm just like a passive observer like i'm gonna put on my massive telephoto and snipe people from across the street but really the more involved you are in in the unfolding scene around you the better the photography gets if if say for example you're like like many have been doing lately going out and covering some things like protests it's it's a altogether different energy if you're there as an outsider than if you're there with everyone being a part of what's happening same with portraiture you know the more you can build that relationship with that person the more they open up like a flower in bloom and they just all of a sudden they begin to show you just a little bit more of who they are and my only goal ever as a portrait capturer a portraitist was to get that split second where they showed up mm-hmm. where they where the guard just dropped just enough that i saw who they were and on my better days capture that mm-hmm. well, it's not so easy but that's i mean to me that's the craft like photography really isn't hard there's not a whole lot to learn you know what shutter speed does you know what aperture does you're basically there the rest is just how do you make stuff look pretty in the frame and what are you trying to do with it the real like where the rubber meets the road is it's all the soft skills that that a person has to put into play there you know how are you how are you building those relationships which i guess if you're shooting landscapes maybe that's maybe we look at that a little bit differently but even still, like even as I'm saying that, I think I would I would disagree with myself. Like the more you go to a particular location, oh, yeah. the more you explore it, the more you discover the secrets that it has to show, the better the photos get. It's one thing to just be a, a passing observer that finds a pretty mountain and is like snap snap and moves on. So it, it's not the same when you when you really dive in. A hundred percent. I agree with you. I just, um, I'm almost done with uh, reading a book about Richard Avedon and it's his longtime uh, manager. Basically she wrote the book after his passing and you know, his narrative was very similar to yours. I mean, he never really got any good formal training in photography and you know, some of these famous subjects of his would come in with a brand new shiny, let's say Leica, you know, that they bought because it's a luxury item and they're all excited about it. And they'd come in and be like, you know, Richard, you're the perfect person to show me how to use this. And he'd be like, Oh, not really. You know, he's like, talk to my studio manager because he had no idea. He barely, he actually shot most of his stuff either on large format, eight by 10 or a Rolleiflex. So, I mean, that's what he did. Most of his famous pictures were on a Rolleiflex. So it was pretty hilarious when you're reading this, it's like, he was like, I know next to nothing about about the technical end of photography, but his whole thing was exactly what you said. It's like catching that uh, split moment. You know, some of his most famous photos are the like the Natasha Kinski with the snake and the uh, the tongue just nipping at her ear right at that yeah. split second, and that's the photo. And he'd have people in there all day long, and they might only take four photographs. And he doesn't know. He didn't even know what what film he was using. Whatever his studio managers were figuring all that stuff out for him. He's like, "What do I need to figure that out for? That's what I got all these people for. I don't need to know any of that." He kind of famously said, he's like, I can teach you everything I know about photography in about 20 minutes, but the rest (laughs) of it is just, you know, it's because, well, in his giant ego, you know, it was because I'm Richard Avedon that the photos are so good. You know, that's, that's the relationship, but pretty interesting. Um, you know, the, 
a lot of this is going to feed into a little bit of the topic you and I had, had talked about ahead of time that we wanted to discuss was sort of specialty and style. But um, maybe uh, let's get some of the business out of the way first. I know that uh, the vast majority of people that come into this podcast, they find it because they're searching for, I can see their search terms. It's like a podcast. So let's talk a little bit about your relationship with Leica uh, because I think people are going to want to know, know a little bit about that. And I do too. So maybe uh, give us just a little rundown on that. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think like most of us, I became aware of this brand when when my passion for photography got to the place where I was like, who makes who makes the best cameras? Like, what's what's the story there? And and I discovered Leica, I discovered the M3, I discovered the history. I didn't know that that Leica invented 35 millimeter photography, like as a whole, right? Like it mm-hmm. we made the first 35 millimeter camera in that company that's incredible that that it, it basically shaped every single thing that you experience in photography today i mean of course like large format medium format stuff is kind of sits in a different category but when we think about how many people re- like how many people use the 35 millimeter camera versus how many people use any other format like that's a tremendous impact that like i had mm-hmm. so I learned about them and then I discovered the M3 and I just, I was in awe of the fact that it was, that it just worked all the time. No batteries, no nothing, just mechanical perfection. And I'm in awe of the fact that we humans can do something like that. Just make something so pristine. There aren't very many things like that in the world. And I think that like, I think Steve Jobs comparing the first iPhone to like the design of a Leica is saying something. It's got an, an iconic thing. You look at the fact that like every camera that you see that has this silver and black color scheme to it, that's a direct either tip of the hat or theft from the mm-hmm. original design idea that yeah. Leica had. That that color scheme is, man, I mean, how how do you have that much recognition just on gray and black on (laughs) like a a rectangle body? That's insane to me. So one day, uh, one day I got one. My dad found one at an estate sale with a a 50 millimeter on it at the dual range. And he got, I mean, that's the other cool thing is like most people that have them that are selling them at like garage sales and estate sales, they have no idea what they're sitting on. He picked up that camera for $300 with the lens on it. And yeah, it needed some work, but it's in pristine shape. And it's one of the one of the double strokes too. So it's like it's oh, cool. back from like nineteen fifty six. Um prior to having that camera, I was I was so just in love with the aesthetic that I got like little phone screens, like the the skins on oh, the yeah. back of the phone. So it would look like yeah, the very first photo on my Instagram account is me with an M nine iPhone skin. Oh because wow. that was the was the best I could do. I mean, for a lot of us, these cameras are aspirational. They're yes, they're expensive, and you know, it, it took me a very long time to like get to the place where I could have my own. And yeah, I mean, it came it came at a pretty good time. I don't know how much you want to get into that, but my journey towards getting that M10 M10D was very specific. Like I, I didn't take that lightly at all. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, why did you choose that? What was the uh, what are the specifics of getting into that? Well, I shot with Canon for my whole career, and I had a Hasselblad and some other stuff too. But I was primarily a Canon shooter, and I used their pro bodies. I had the one D Mark IV and the one DS Mark III, and I I mostly shot with an eighty five f one point two. 
It's a fantastic lens. As big as it and slow as it mm-hmm. is, it's a remarkable uh, lens. And I, I think I had like the first or second generation one. They've only gotten better from what I understand. But in 2015, give or take, uh, a couple, like the perfect storm of stuff happened. I was already feeling like it was about time to do something else. I was that the beginning stage of some burnout was starting. I had a blog that I ran for five years where my personal project was I would post something every single day. And I got to tell you, that was a horrible decision. It, <laughs> it was so stressful because like inevitably you're going to miss one. Yeah. And inevitably you're going to be like, man, and you're going to beat yourself or at least I did. Yeah. And, and I just found myself like, I wasn't, I didn't want to plan the content ahead of time. I wanted it to be everything that I had, like the most interesting thing I had seen that day or what I had been working on. Sometimes it was an edit from a shoot that was a week ago, but it was still like whatever I had worked on that day. And I just got to a place where like, it would be 1130 at night and I'd realize I hadn't posted that day and I would have to like go do that lest I let myself down again. And it just, I put too much weight on it. Mm -hmm. And so after five years, I I put that away. I decided to to do just maybe a different way of marketing, but I think it was kind of too late then. In 2015, I got in in a car accident that messed my neck up pretty bad. And not only did I, I already hated carrying around so much studio gear and always having to have a big heavy camera around my neck. Like it was okay for a while, but after that accident, I just, I don't want to do it anymore. It hurt and it wasn't worth it. Like being a photographer professionally is already hard enough. Like Mm -hmm. it's a massively competitive pool. And just like with acting or music or any of the other creative fields, sure you have the one percenters that get there and that just like chase jarvis man chase jarvis is just killing Mm -hmm. it and he was clever because he leveraged all of his photographic recognition into more entrepreneurial endeavors that would allow him to like not have to always just be doing photography and i paid attention when i when i noticed that you know i i've spent probably the past decade as a mentor at a startup school that I helped co-found. And I learned a lot from that too, of just what it looks like to really run a successful business. And at some point in time in that, one of my old roommates was a a business major. And I asked him, I was like, man, can you think of a business that has basically zero barriers to entry, zero ability to build equity, no benefits to speak of as far as insurance goes, no real ability to like get vacation time accrued, anything like that, no real ability to sell your business if you ever want to get acquired. What what do you think that business would be? And he thought for a little while, he's like, I don't know. It's like it's photography. It like if you're trying to be wealthy, this is oh, there's easier ways, man. <laughs> yeah, there's sure. so many easier ways than trying to do it with a camera. And I think all of that kind of spiraled me into this like identity crisis. Everybody knew me as David, the photographer. Mm -hmm. I knew me as something different, but everyone else knew me as that. And so when I, when I decided finally to put it down and just take a break for a while and go do something else, my wife and I were getting married. She, she was never really like, she didn't know what it meant to be a freelancer and like how that income can ebb and flow. Whereas I'd been doing it for so long that, yeah, I would take a job that would take care of me for, you know, three to six months. 
and I would do other things while I, you know, worked my budget and just kind of paid myself out of that. And she wanted something that felt a little bit more stable. So I went back to my other roots, which were marketing and advertising. And I just decided to do that for a while. Uh, but at the end of that, we, we ended up moving here to DC. She got a different position. I work for myself. So we just packed up and came here. And I didn't even know that Leica had physical stores. Like I had no reason to look. Right. I wasn't shopping for one of those cameras. Sure. Uh, but when I got to DC, you know, my whole network was just evaporated. And of course, like, yeah, we can do stuff remotely and I can fly wherever we want, but that increases budgets for everybody, right? Like to have to pay a photographer to come to you when you're mm -hmm. already maybe a small business or a fitness competitor that's like trying to just get their name out there and needs marketing materials, it's not feasible for them. So I started looking around here and my first question was like, all right, well, where, are the, where do the photographers hang out? Where are the photo stores? Where are my people at? And Google showed me a Leica store. And I think the next day I walked in just to see it. And I remember I talked with a uh, Werner's the, the manager there, but I don't, I think he was in the back that day. I talked with the other two people up front and one of them was an instructor and I don't know, everybody was just really friendly. Mm -hmm. I, I've sat there for maybe an hour, just, just talking craft with people, which if anybody talks to me at that store, you know, that's, I am happy to just sit and talk the craft of photography all day long. I don't even care if someone comes in to buy anything. I will just talk. I have no problem mm -hmm. just talking. And I just, I, I left with such a good feeling about that place. And I already like, I'm, I'm not a person that cares about brands at all. There, there might be three maybe. And I'm just making that number up because I have to like, <laughs> I feel like I have to qualify right. it. But if there is a list, Leica is easily at or near the top of that list. Because I have a tremendous amount of respect for the history of this brand and what they contributed to something that I made a part of my life for half of my life. And so, you know, I kind of just dropped a little hint that like, hey, if there was, you know, if anything opened up and they needed somebody, I, even part time, I, I think it would just be, you know, kind of fun. And uh, sure enough, a couple months later, that happened and it turned out that they also needed somebody to to take the lead on the academy program at that store and i absolutely love teaching and there's a perfect fit for me so that's that's what i've been doing there uh, the m10d came about because of all of that injury stuff that i was talking about mm -hmm. i i needed a thing that was going to help me reset maybe is the right way to look at sure. it i needed something that was going to help me fall back in love with photography and and I was at a place, it had been probably, let's call it somewhere between three and five years since I had actively pursued professional photography at that point. I've always taken care of my core clients. You know, the saying is that 80% of your income comes from 20% of your clients. Sure, and those 20%, yeah. they could call me up anytime and I was there for them. But I stopped actively promoting myself as a photographer because I just didn't really want to be that anymore. And when I picked up the M series of cameras, uh, it just, they challenged me in a different way. They, I couldn't run and gun anymore. I had to think about what I was doing. And it made me realize that I had let that part of the craft slip and all of the hustling to go and, and, and make the profits and stuff. I had forgotten why I fell in love with the thing in the first place. And every time I shot with an M, uh, for one, I was humbled 
because yeah. I had never really used a rangefinder before. And I mean, I shot my M3, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, it was very different when I was shooting with a digital M. And it, it quickly showed me that I was nowhere near as adept with that camera as I expected I would be. And I think from that point on, I was hooked. So I ended up selling all of my dusty Canon gear. I sold the Hasselblad. I sold everything essentially, but my studio lights and dumped all that into the M10D. I chose the M10D because I, I don't know, maybe I just don't like myself very much, but I wanted to make it as hard as I possibly could. I wanted to, I had noticed that I was always chimping my shots and, Mm -hmm. and I was like, I've been shooting for 15 years. Why don't I trust that I got the exposure? Right. Yeah. Why do I, I don't need to look at the screen. And so I got the camera that didn't have the screen so I could break myself of that. I spent my whole career shooting 85 and above. I might go down to 50 every now and then, but most of the time I was well above that. So I bought a 35. Mm-hmm. Kept that as my only lens for a year to say, all right, let, like, let me get, let me get back to me in this. Let me stop doing this for other people. And let me find a way to, to bring the passion back, to let it be a thing that's just for me. I don't care if people like what I shoot, think it's boring. It doesn't matter to me because at this point, like I'm not shooting for them. I'm shooting for me. And if something happens as a result of that, I'll consider it. But, but this is purely selfish at this point. Well, yeah, now you're breaking my heart a little bit more because uh, it's, you know, it's bringing up all these horrible, uh, you know, emotions that I went through. It's funny because, uh, you know, you're the second uh, guy I've talked to in a row that shoots an M10D and uh, Justin Mott, I did two episodes with him. We had a long conversation. He's out in Vietnam and he, uh, he kind of stumbled into it uh, basically for the same reasons that you just described, you know, the kind of, which is what they had in mind when they designed that camera, you know, and he grabbed onto it uh, when he was visiting a like a shop, I think he was in Singapore or something. And he's like, Oh man, this is, this is pretty wild. And he'd shot all the other brands. I mean, he's a pretty, um, you know, well-seasoned professional at this point, he owns a whole visual company, does all this stuff and commercials and things. But, um, you know, for all of his personal projects, it's this M10 D and in fact, uh, he's gotten so accustomed to it and so used to it. And it's just, that's his machine that he's, uh, you know, he's got covers of magazines and stuff that he's taken with that. He was on like the Smithsonian magazine cover recently with a shot he took of with a, the M10 D. I was like, that's, that's pretty cool. And so we had this whole conversation about using a camera like that professionally and he's like you know it was funny because for him you know digressing a little bit he was like the the funny thing is i show up at these sites and they expect me to bring all of this stuff with me and then i pull out this tiny little camera and if they don't know he's like most people don't know photographers don't know and you bring out this little toy camera they're like okay great when's the real photographer showing up <laughs> I know, so yep i thought that was pretty funny the um I don't know. It's, it's, it's wild. Cause I, uh, I've been kind of going through that a little bit since I made the, the switch for me, obviously it was necessary and very wise. And the SL2 is amazing. You know, it, it's amazing, but like it does so much so well that it's, it, it is easy to like, you know, set that, uh, high speed and you know, you've got an autofocus, you got all these things and you're just banging away and you come home and you had a thousand photos and you're just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not why, you know, this is not me. And uh, Nikon for quite a while before this and that and the, the that was the thing Nikon and Olympus I had uh, for my work I take wildlife photography 
quite a bit. It's not actually something that I really get that excited about personally. Um, I, I do get excited about success in photography. So I enjoy like when I actually nail a shot, but for the most part, it's because it's important marketing material for the land conservancy that I work for our conservation work. It's important to point out the wildlife and things. So the, um, so sometimes you just get excited about getting those photos, but honestly, if it wasn't my job, I probably wouldn't invest in all kinds of telephoto gear and be out doing it. But, um, I had work had, I was buying equipment through work for the stuff that I would need to do that. And, um, because we were so mobile and out in the field and on foot a lot, micro four thirds made a lot of sense for us because like the Olympus had those pro lenses that are super durable, really good. Uh, except for obviously you're dealing with such a small sensor, but the, um, I was using the, uh, they have the world's longest name, just OMDEM1 Mark II was the camera body Rolls that I was using. Yeah. <laughs> and then they came out with the OMDEM1X, which is like a, you know, integrated battery grip, huge camera with a tiny sensor, but it's, it was like 20 some frames per second mechanical, so fast. And so I go out with that camera with this 300 millimeter uh, f4 constant aperture. That's a 600 millimeter on micro four thirds, and a tele uh, teleconverter. So you know you're at f5.6, and you're at like 800 millimeters, and it's you know you can easily hand hold it. Great stabilization, everything. And then you'd come home, and I literally would have 1,800 photos on that card to pull down. And I'm like, this is just, this is not photography. I don't enjoy it's this. It's a whole different kind of problem. At all. Yeah, it's like, you know, you're out there for an hour to get a good picture of Sandhill Cranes mating. And then you come back, and I've got six hours of going through photos just to find the couple that I'm going to use for a social media post. It just, like, yeah. it, it absolutely spoiled it for me. So I go about those things completely differently now. But... Um, I don't know. Slowing down is important. And I have found myself with the SL2, even in this last week, I've had a couple important things that I've been asked to take pictures of and they're kind of outside of work. So I felt a responsibility to get the shot and I'm, you know, cranking up my speed and taking more photos and then coming back and having that same problem again. And I've got good exposures. I've got decent pictures. They're fine. But like, I didn't know where they were going to be in that digital contact sheet because I didn't remember taking any of them. Like I, I wasn't that present taking those pictures. I wasn't that conscious. I was just like doing exactly what I'm always warning against, which is just making sure the camera's set up and then relying so much on the camera. And then you're just, you know, machine gunning around the place. And I was really trying to get good compositions and I was trying to get into unusual spots. And there's another photographer there and, you know, looking at what they were doing, just kind of more straight on headshots. I was like, I'm going to make this more interesting. So I did get some things that I like. It's just something that I was struggling with this week. And I was kind of just, you know, I was getting the pictures, but I was just sort of disappointed in the process. And I wasn't, and I'm on this podcast, if you listen to it, uh, if, the, if you're new to this and you go back and listen to some of the other episodes, I talk a lot about the process as therapy and the process is something that means a lot to me. I'm not a professional photographer, but it's a really important part of my life and it is an important part of my work. Even though I'm not a professional, I'm probably as close to like a semi-professional as you can be because the success of our organization depends on our ability to communicate it, uh, communicate our work. Everybody relies on me to take these pictures, so I, I take it very seriously. But if it's if the process fails, it's like, I don't know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work for me. And it just, it keeps me up at night. Definitely. You hit on a couple of things there that I, I wanted to circle back on. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the most recent that you just said was, you know, the not a professional thing. And I got to tell you, that's that, that, and I'm just not that creative are probably the two most common things I hear when someone uh, is talking with me about photography and especially if they find out that you know i've i've been and am still a pro 
So there's a couple points that I think are really important for people to understand about that is that if I remember correctly, in order to be considered a professional in Canon's stuff where they would give you like priority service and stuff, you had to be able to prove that 80% of your income came from photography, which, yeah, that's a that's a practical metric metric for like, are you a pro or not? I think that there's a little bit more to it, like underneath all of that, how a pro approaches shooting is pretty much exactly what you were just talking about. Like I'm shooting for other people, so I need to make sure that I got it. Mm -hmm. And machine gunning and being all over the place is really important when you're doing that. Mm -hmm. It's, it's this commitment to making sure that there are so many options that you're almost guaranteed to have gotten something that they'll be happy with. Because the only thing that matters to me when I'm shooting for another person is that they come out getting what they need. So the difference to me between an amateur and a professional is in, in many ways volume. Because I see a lot of amateurs or hobbyists, whatever you want to, whatever we need to label people as, mm -hmm. I guess. Like, sure. The people that aren't trying to do it at that level, they'll see something interesting. They might take somewhere between one and five photos and then they'll move on. When a professional will dance around whatever it is that they're shooting until there's nothing else left to shoot. Sometimes, you know, that can be, you know, just someone that's devoid of imagination but most of the time mm -hmm. like you're checking every angle you're laying on the ground you're standing on your head you're jumping over it. whatever it takes exactly. to do the thing mm -hmm. i have literally fallen through a stage <laughs> trying to get a shot no joke i yeah. i was standing on a riser and the next thing i knew i was like chest deep in chair where like the whole thing fell out from underneath me i got the shot but my shins were scraped from angle oh, to no. me it was terrible well, the thing is that like, that's, there's no secret to this stuff. The more a person shoots, the better they get. Mm -hmm. as, I mean, of course, like as long as they're shooting with attention and awareness to what they're doing, you yeah. can't just hold down the button, not move and expect to get better. It doesn't work that way. But if, if a person is like really actively trying to develop volume and practice are the only real secret. It's a craft. There you go. David is the man. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed editing this episode because I was just uh, excited to re-experience that conversation that I had with David. So uh, we have uh, another half of it yet to come. That episode will be out shortly. Um, also in the can, I've got uh, Brian from uh, the Business of Photography podcast. And uh, for those of you that are following uh, sort of serious photography on YouTube, um, I think I've mentioned Ben Horn before. Uh, ben and I have been in conversation and we are going to do an interview. So if you're not familiar with Ben Horn, that's Ben B-E-N, of course, Ben, H-O-R-N-E. Uh, uh, look him up on YouTube. He's a large format photographer that does incredible landscapes, has an incredible work ethic uh, about... Um 
about how he crafts his photographs, and uh, he's amazing and uh, an amazing steward of, of, uh, of the environment as well. So excited to talk to Ben. I got Brian Capricci on there, and then uh, we have another half of coming uh, with uh, with David. And then I'm also going to throw in a couple more of these straight out of camera. And then I do also owe you guys a more detailed episode uh, with some technical uh, technical discussion of photography and creativity. That'll probably be the next episode. So stay tuned for that. Thanks again, David. Uh, anybody that wants to get a hold of me, I am easy to get a hold of. I am not a celebrity. You can easily find me uh, online at ZacharyBranigan.com. That's Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y-B-R-A-N-I-G-A-N.com. Or you can reach out to me on Instagram at ZGBranigan. Uh, also, by the way, I have a monochrome account that I started, uh, and it's just all monochrome. That is all there in black and white. That's my handle on Instagram. I will talk about it uh, occasionally in my um, in my stories on my primary channel, um, but I hope that some of you follow me there because I love monochromatic photography, black and white photography, and that's uh, all I do over there. So you can find me there. Anyway, look me up, hit me up. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, take care. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.